Hope that uh, you're having a great uh, beginning to our Lord's Day, and uh, we welcome our visitors as well. A few weeks ago, in fact, last month, I shared a lesson with you, and I began with this title, Churches of Christ, Who Are These People? And it continues to be one of my favorite tracks. If there's someone that's not familiar with Churches of Christ, this tract by Joe Barnett uh, is, has always been a favorite of mine. Joe Barnett is still writing. I get a daily email from him, and uh, he always has great things to share as a gospel preacher. But it, it poses a great question. For those who are not familiar with Churches of Christ or for, for all of us who, who are members of Churches of Christ, it, it helps us to reflect on some of the doctrines that we teach, by the way, I don't want to teach any doctrine that's not in the Bible, right? So any doctrine that uh, is presented should be straight from the Word. We want to be a Bible-based, we're a Bible-believing church, but even more than that, we want to be shaped by the Scriptures. We want to be everything that God wants the church to be and what, what Jesus wants it to be and what the apostles guided it to be. So we want to be a Bible-shaped church. And so I posed this statement, and I can't speak for all churches of Christ, but uh, here is a statement that is characteristic of all the churches of Christ that I know. Churches of Christ are undenominational, undenominational. And what we mean by that is this is a term applied to those who oppose the denominational concept and who wish no denominations existed. Stay with me. And we posed last month two, two fundamental reasons why we, we seek to be undenominational. Number one is because different denominations are conspicuously absent in the New Testament. We simply don't read about different denominations in, in, in the New Testament. Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church. And that's all we see is one church in the scripture. Different congregations, but one church. All congregations seeking to follow the same, the same pattern and plan that Jesus and the apostles instituted. The second reason is this. There is an appeal in the New Testament for unity and a condemnation of division in God's church. Uh, we'll look at a the, the appeal for unity more in just a moment. But notice that. There is also this instruction that there be no division among uh, members of the church. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, for example, when Christians in Corinth were, were following after their primary teachers, some were saying, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas. Paul said this, correcting that. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. At a point where in the history of the church there could have been denominations formed following after different teachers, that was never God's plan. He is writing to say, no, Christ isn't divided. You weren't... Uh, Christ did, or Paul didn't die for you. You weren't baptized in the name of Paul. You're baptized in the name of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. And there's appeal for unity throughout the scriptures. And we looked at this last time. Jesus prayed for our unity. 
He prayed that all those who would believe on him through the apostles' word would be one just as he is in the Father and the Father in him. One like us, he prayed. Jesus paid for our unity. Ephesians 2 is in the context of this former division of Jews and Gentiles and how because of Christ they could become one in Jesus. He paid the price for that unity. The Apostle Paul, as we've seen, pleaded for unity, 1 Corinthians 1. And the Lord planned for our unity. And I'm going through this quickly because this is your review. <laughs> I googled, I googled this question. How many, quote, Christian denominations are there in, in the world? And one source cited 33,000 Christian denominations in the U.S. 33,000. And I don't know how they came up with that number. I know it's a lot. I hope it's not that many. But when you look at that statistic, is that what our Lord prayed for? Is that what our Lord died for? Is that what the Apostle Paul pleaded for? Is that what the Lord planned our world is so denominated, it's so divided on so many levels, politically, racially, morally, economically, and yes, even religiously. And so I want us to focus this morning on, on these ideas, how to be undenominational in a denominational world, how to be undenominational in, an, in a denominational world. I'm indebted to Dr. Stafford North, who taught for many years at Oklahoma Christian University, for an article in a book that, that he wrote um, uh, uh, with this title. And four of the major points come from him, and I added another. So how is it if, if we don't read about denominations in the New Testament, and yet we see that on the, our religious landscape today, how can we be undenominational in a denominational world. Number one, let's teach and practice that the church is one. That the church is one. Again, the church as it began in the first century did not have denominational divisions. It's a matter of biblical record. Jesus built his church, not denominations. I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And that rock was the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And again, we only read about one church in the New Testament. Different congregations, but one church. Each congregation instructed to follow the same general pattern of beliefs and practices. What we want is to go back to just that. Just that. Denominationalism, however, divides believers into subgroups with different beliefs and practices, some very much opposed. We see de denominationalism promotes division. It promotes division. And this goes against what we see in Scripture about there being one body. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. Seems like we should get the message. One. Unity. That's what God wants among His people. 
And just as there is one body, God wants his church to be one, one in unity. But folks, denominationalism, 33,000 Christian denominations, does that speak to unity? We think not. So how do we become, how, do we, how are we to be undenominational in a denominational world? Well, let's take a biblical stance on the nature of Christ's church, that the church is one, and we need to be unified in, in that. Number two, teach and practice that Christ is Lord. That's how to be undenominational in a denominational world. Teach and practice that Christ is Lord. When we talk about the church, we must not make the mistake of saying that we're converting the world to, to the church. We're converting the world to Christ. Christ is the Savior. Christ is Lord. The church, however, is the assembly of the saved. Because the Bible teaches us that when Christ saves a person, at the same time, he adds that person to the church. Let's go back to Acts 2, where the church began in fulfillment of prophecy. The Jews cried out after hearing Peter and the apostles preach about Christ, the very one that was crucified in Jerusalem some 50 days prior. That Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And they cried out. They were cut to the heart. They cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And the answer came, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. About 3,000 accepted that and obeyed the gospel that day. And verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, added to the church. When they obeyed the gospel, they when they repented and were, were baptized in the name of Jesus, their sins, based upon their faith, their sins were washed away. At the same time, they were added to the church. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. How did that happen? Was it continued to share the good news of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection? When people responded to that in obedient faith, the Lord continued to add them to, to the church. But there's been this debate through the years. Do we preach the man or the plan? The plan being the idea, the organization of the church, how we are to enter into the church, the family of God, and, and what's the function of the church, how is it to be governed, and so forth. And we have uh, the New Testament to guide us in that in matters of worship and fellowship and benevolence and evangelism and, and nurturing new Christians. That's the plan. At the same time, we must always emphasize the man. We're converted to Christ, right? First Timothy 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He is our mediator. He is our savior. He's the one to whom we must be converted. So is it the man or the plan? The answer is, it's both. The answer is the man has a plan. 
And if Christ is our Lord, he's our ruler, our master, then we're to follow him, not only as our Lord, as the ruler of our lives individually, but collectively as the body of Christ. We must continue to follow the plan that he and the apostles laid out for us. So how, do you, how, how are we to be undenominational in a denominational world? Let's teach and practice that Christ is Lord and truly submit to him. Number three, let's teach and practice that the word is the seed. The word is the seed. There's a parable of Jesus that's shared three times in the gospel accounts. It's called the parable of the sower. And Jesus uses the what was very common, what the Jews of the first century would, nat- would see uh, naturally, is farmers planting their fields. And this particular farmer is using the broadcast method. He's, he's scattering seed among, on the ground. And the seed produces different results in Jesus' story. Be- and it depended on the state of the soil in which the seed was planted. When Jesus interprets the parable... He says that the soils represent different types of hearts, different types of hearts, and the seed is the word of God, Luke 8 and verse 11. So the seed is planted, it is broadcast, it is the gospel is shared, and the fruit that is born depends on the type of soil that that seed enters, that the word of God enters. The good the ones that fell on the good ground Luke 8.15, are those who having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Good soil receives the seed, the word of God, believes it and then puts it into practice and then fruit is born. From the parable of the sower and also the proclaiming of the great commission of the gospel of Jesus and from first century practice, it is evident that the gospel was preached and and produced the same result every time when that seed fell on good and honest hearts. Let me give you a quick overview. In Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the seed was sown and about 3,000 obeyed the gospel. Philip took that same seed into Samaria and shared the good news of Jesus and that seed bore fruit in good and honest hearts. Philip in a chariot could preach Jesus to one man who, who asked about a passage in Isaiah. Of whom does this speak? Of, him, of whom is he speaking? Of himself or of some other? And he began from that scripture and preached unto him Jesus. That Ethiopian, when they, when they came upon, upon a pot, body of water, asked what hinders me from being baptized. And they descended from the chariot, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. That same seed was planted into a good and honest heart, and it bore fruit. Saul, on the road to Damascus, was confronted by Christ. Christ told him, you go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the Lord sent Ananias to plant that same seed again and said to Paul, who was now at this point a penitent believer, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Saul obeyed the gospel. And it became a, a force for Christ. But it was that same seed that was planted, that was planted into a good and honest heart, and it bore fruit. 
Peter goes to Caesarea to speak words whereby Cornelius and his household could be saved. They obeyed the gospel. They became Christians. The seed produced fruit in their lives. Paul, on his missionary journeys, preached the same message around the world, everywhere that he went. And whenever there was good soil that received the seed, the same fruit was born. What was it? People became Christians. And they were added to the church. What does that mean for today? Wherever the seed of God's word is planted into good and honest hearts, you get the same fruit that you did in the first century. You get Christians. You get the church. The Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised, guided the apostles and the inspired prophets into all truth. And those inspired uh, words gave instruction not only to how to become followers of Jesus, but how to live as followers of Jesus and how the church is to operate. Paul, John, and Jesus and others in the New Testament forbid anyone to change or vary from this teaching. In fact, what we find in the New Testament, there are warnings and even predictions of departures from the truth. And let me cite two of those for you. Paul told the elders of the church at Ephesus, Acts 20, for I know this that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. You see what he's saying? Some are going to depart from the truth. Some are going to try to gain a following for themselves and therefore they're going to be teaching things that aren't true. And they have these impure motives. Paul predicted apostasy when he wrote to Timothy. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So there's that warning. There's going to be an apostasy. But what's what's the idea then? Salvation is found when we follow the true gospel, not a distorted one. The seed of the gospel, pure from contamination, can be planted anywhere, in any location, any century, and the result will be the same. But since falling away is clearly identified as wrong, those coming after such apostasy must restore the true teaching because the different gospel has no power to save. The, fact, the very fact that, that Paul uh, was predicting that there would be an apostasy, that people would depart from the faith, gives the, 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 the truth that when that happens, people have to come back to the truth. They have to dis- do away with false doctrines and come back to the truth. Tucker and I have been studying with you on Sunday nights about Nehemiah. That text, that book is a great study on this idea of restoration. Restoration. The people of God under the old covenant had gotten away from him and away from his word. And so there is a renewal of this covenant to be obedient to God and to his word once again. If that's not restoration, I don't know what is. But if we find ourselves having departed from the faith, that's the only way to get back into the faith is to be restored. I added this one, how to be undenominational in a denominational world. 
Folks, be seekers of truth. Be seekers of truth. I believe the Bereans provide an outstanding example. These people were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. Notice, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. The apostles were preaching. Yet these Bereans aren't saying, well, they must be right. They're examining the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, to see if what Paul and others were saying about how those had been fulfilled in Jesus, they examined it for themselves to see if it was true. They were seeking the truth. And what a wonderful model for you and for me to always want to, to seek and to know the truth. Remember this statement. Truth is not afraid of investigation. Folks, if it's the truth, it's going to be true every time. So we mustn't be afraid to examine doctrines and to compare doctrines with other people who may believe differently. And, but we go back to the source of truth, that is the Word of God, and we always have this mindset, I want to know the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So be a truth seeker. And that search will always have to take us back to the Word of God. We're disciples of Jesus. We're students. We're learners. And so we need to always have that mindset. I'm here to learn. I want to add to my add knowledge to my faith. I want to continue to grow in my understanding. And so I need to be open to truth whenever it is presented. But I love G.K. Chesterton's warning here. Don't be so open-minded that your brains fall out. <laughs> I love that statement. Some are so open-minded, and some would say there is no such thing as absolute truth, which is a redundancy. If it's truth, it's truth. But some are so open-minded that their brains fall out, that they lose their ability to reason. I've also loved this mindset expressed by John Maxwell. God, when I am wrong, make me willing to change. When I am right make me easy to live with. God, if I'm wrong, make me willing to change. If I search in this word and, and discover truth that I had not seen before, I've misunderstood before, God, make me willing to change. But if, if I'm right on this, if it agrees with the word of God, make me easy to live with. That doesn't mean don't take a stand for the truth, but it means taking a stand in the right way. To do it lovingly with this mindset, I want to know the truth. I want you to know the truth, and the truth is here. So let's be seekers of it together. And number five, I think this was a very wise statement uh, by Stafford North. Teach how to be undenominational in a denominational world. Teach and practice that we are teachers, not judges. Richard Lincoln is known by, was known and loved by many of you. If, you. if you don't recognize that name, he was a member here for many, many years until he passed. And he had some great statements that he would make. Another of my favorites is he, said, he would say in a Bible discussion, well, I may not be right, but I'm never wrong. I always loved that. 
It's, and he said it in jest, but he also said it to let you know if he, if he shared something with you, his understanding of the Word of God, it was well thought out. He had, he had tested it. But here's another statement that I would hear him make from time to time, and I don't think I appreciated it as much as I do then as I do now. He would say, I'm a teacher, not a judge. I'm a teacher, not a judge. As we've seen, there is a true gospel. There are perversions of the gospel. In preaching the gospel, we will, of course, have to contrast it with others who view it differently or any matter of doctrine. But Stafford North says this, We are then to judge whether a teaching is in harmony with the scripture. But then he added this, At the same time, it is not our role to be the judges of the souls around us, to pass judgment on the eternal destiny of others. God is the judge in eternal destiny. And I'm thankful to be able to say that. That I'm not the judge. God is. He's the perfect judge. He knows the heart of men. And he's given us his word to follow. And that's, that's where it comes in. The secret things belong to God. But the things that are revealed, Deuteronomy 29, 29, belong to us. That we should understand them and follow them. Romans 14, 4 says, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or, or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. We test doctrines, folks. We go to the truth and we compare what we hear with what the Word teaches, just like those noble Bereans. But we don't have to predict anyone's eternal destiny. God is the perfect judge. We're not. He knows the hearts of men. He is the ultimate judge. We should teach what the Bible says on any point of doctrine and contrast it with false teaching in, in an appropriate way. We should never belittle others because of their beliefs or try to predict the eternal destiny of those who believe it. There are scriptures which say, if you do this, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And all we can do is say, that's what God says. There are scriptures that say, if you do not do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But let's, God's, let's let God's word speak as we compare these doctrines. But let God be the ultimate judge. We do have to teach the truth. We do have to teach that what one believes and practices makes a difference to God. We do have to teach what the Bible says will save or condemn in the final judgment. But we judge whether a teaching is scriptural, not what someone's eternal destiny will be. Let's teach the word. Let's be seekers of truth and let God be the ultimate judge. But I remind you again, if that stat is true, 33,000 Christian denominations, denominations that proclaim to follow Jesus. Is that what Jesus prayed for? Is that what he died for? I don't think so. So let's seek to be the church that he purchased with his own blood. Let's seek to follow the, the 
teachings of Jesus and the apostles who were guided by the Holy Spirit, who were guided into all truth. Let's compare doctrines, but let's plant that same seed that was planted in the first century and the church resulted. And if that same seed is planted today, good good and honest hearts will receive it and obey it and become a part of the church which Jesus died for and established. I conclude with Jesus' prayer once more. I do not pray for these alone, speaking of his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you see that? The unity of God's people is to be a testimony to the fact that God sent Jesus into the world. Folks, I fear that when unbelievers look at those who profess to follow Jesus and see so much division, that's a turnoff. So let's seek to to be undenominational in a denominational world, to make this plea. Let's go back to the Bible. Let's restore anything that is not found that we're not doing and let's turn away from anything that we're doing that's not found in scripture let's be let's let christ be the lord and submit our lives fully in obedience to his will it's a glorious plan that the man made possible are you a part of that glorious plan have you obeyed the gospel of jesus christ if this morning You have never made those initial steps of obedience. You can. If you believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He died for you, if you will turn from sin in what the Bible calls repentance, turn to Jesus to follow Him as a way of life, you can be baptized into Christ this morning. The the water is warm. It's ready. You can be immersed Just like Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, you can die to sin, be buried in the grave, a watery grave of baptism, be raised to walk in newness of life. And folks, when you're raised, when you experience that new birth, God adds you to his family. You've been born again. And now you're in the church that Jesus died for, that he purchased. And now we follow his plan, his plan that was continued through the apostles, the inspired apostles. And we follow them and we seek the truth continually and and try to compel others to also be truth seekers and put away preconceived ideas and go back to the Word and let the Word be the guide. And pleading with all to submit their lives to Jesus as well. But if you're subject to that invitation of Jesus this morning, I pray that you will obey the gospel. If we've departed from the faith, the good news is we can come back home. If that's the desire of your heart, if you need the prayers of the church this morning, we invite you to come right now as we stand and sing.